Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading will be taken from the book of Judges, chapter 10, verse 6 to 8, and from chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, and verses 29 to 40. Judges, chapter 10, verses 6 to 8, chapter 11, verse 1 to 13, and verses 29 to 40. Again, sorry. Um, I'll end the reading by saying, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the Israelites of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said. Be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with a question. What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Anon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give me 
the Ammonites into my hands. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. It devastated 20 towns from Arua to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Edel Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the, the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year, the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Bola. And good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you here. Well, we've been going through, um, for those who probably knew here, we've been going through the book of uh, Judges in a mini-series, a six-part series. So this is actually the fifth message in that series. And one of the things we're trying to do with this series is to say, we really do believe, as we saw in our vision, that um, this city is in need of renewal. We're in need of social renewal. We're in need of cultural renewal. And because it's very broken in many regards, but that would like to see that through what you can call spiritual renewal. Now, looking at the book of Judges and some of the judges, the characters of the judges, that kind of tells us on the one hand how this thing can be done when we look at some of the ways God worked through them. But Israel as a whole is going in the reverse from what you would call a renewal. They almost have an anti-revival. So... That's what we've been doing, and uh, we want to consider this will be the penultimate message, as I've said, um, in that series. Now, I, um, I was remembering this week, you know, sometimes you sit down, you're a bit bored, and you, don't, you just think about stuff. I often, especially when I'm playing, I love a lot of oldies music, so when I play music, it kind of transports me back to my growing up, my childhood days. So this week, I was remembering how... Um, I don't know whether they do this now because most of the young kids are either playing uh, their Xboxes or whatever. But we used to play, there was a time people used to play outside, believe it or not. We used to play outside. And for guys, you know, the girls would be somewhere there. I don't know, they're probably gossiping or doing, I don't, I don't know what they were doing. But um, we, we used to play football, football. And what, it starts this way, essentially. There's a ball that comes. One guy brings the ball. We've been waiting for the guy all day. He brings the ball, finally. And first, one somebody says, ah, first captain. And then somebody else says, second captain. In other words, they're going to be the leaders of a team. So you then come, and there's a pool of guys you are going to choose from. Now, 
what beside you if the number of the pool is an odd number? You know what I mean by an odd number, right? Even an odd number. Most times, it will be a five aside. So you choose that person, then you choose that. Then you start thinking, yeah, okay, well, it's the first one. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not the best footballer, so I'm not going to make the second one. Like, yeah, of course, this guy is actually better than me. Then the third one, the fourth one. And then you start seeing, and when it's five, and maybe you are now like three of you left, and just two more people. And then the captain is now thinking, ah, who is my very good friend? I mean, those three people are always, they are obviously the terrible ones. And then you are just thinking, God, I don't mind being the last person. Just don't, just, I will, I will be humble, just choose me last. And you start looking. You're like, Bola, choose me. And then they choose and they choose, and then finally you are the only one left. Now, we laugh at it, but it was a horrible feeling. I'm not saying it happened to me, by the way. Never did. Of course. I was always, the best way to do it, just be the, be the captain, right? So you'll never be. So, but it is a horrible feeling. You may decide to watch the match, or you may not. You just, if you, if you decide to watch the match, you're actually sitting down somewhere in the corner, just looking. You really don't care what the result is. You just feel bad that you've been rejected. I'm sure the ladies, again, maybe when they used to play 10-10, who remembers that? Who doesn't know what 10-10 is? Okay, who remembers 10-10? 10-10? Yeah, yeah. Okay, raise up your hand if you remember. Raise up. No, they don't want to. All right. But is that, you know, I think they used to have teams as well. And if you are not on the 1010 team, you know, you feel rejected. You feel rejected. Now, what does that have to do with the revival? Let me start with this. We're talking about revival. What do we mean? This series is based on the premise. There's one premise we've been trying to drive out with this series. is that social and cultural renewal, from a Christian perspective, only occurs as a result of, or in fact, because it occurs after and as a result of spiritual renewal. Social and cultural renewal, um, from a Christian perspective, occurs after and as a result of spiritual renewal. If we look at our current situation, our current condition, very similar to Israel, we'll say that we are desperately in need of revival. But what is it? What is this word? What does this word mean? Or what does this phenomenon mean? Now, most times today, it's very easy, you know, like, Today is July the 2nd. We need to get, get things, crank things up in the church. What do we do? We plan a revival at the end of the... Uh, so, guys, July 28th, we're going to have a revival. By that, we essentially are saying we have this model that revival is an event. It's an event that can be staged. You put the right music. So maybe it's a concert. Or maybe it's uh, a lineup of speakers that we want to bring. But usually it's an event that is associated with some kind of emotional uh, rousing uh, um, effect on us. You left and you said, man, that event, God came down. And from that, we kind of get a sense and a feeling that what I felt during that event must have meaning beyond that event. You, you get the sense that now I'm going into the world, everything is going to be, things are falling, you know, the walls are crumbling down for me, all of those kinds of things. And you go in to that first week with that kind of zeal, and sometimes, you know, somehow towards the end of the week, everything just seems to be normal again until the next revival event. Now, it's just basically, if we can summarize what I just said, it's something we often associate with occurrences of the extraordinary. Sometimes it's healing. We say, okay, maybe we're holding a healing crusade or whatever. But we always associate it with an event where we have occurrences of the extraordinary. 
Now, Tim Keller is a pastor um, that's just recently stepped down from his church in New York, and he defines revival in this way. It is simply the intensification of the ordinary operations of the spirit. It is the intensification of the ordinary operations of the spirit. By that, we are talking about, essentially, more non-Christians becoming Christians. Or more nominal Christians realizing that they weren't Christians and now becoming Christians. Or more sleepy Christians basically waking up. When you have concentrated over a period of time, guess what you have? A revival. It's not so much about the extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit, but actually the same ordinary works of the Holy Spirit, moving us to zeal, to see conversions, moving us to hunger for God, greater holiness, zeal for accountable, loving uh, uh, community, zeal for generosity, having those things so concentrated among the people over a period of time. When we just say, look, I don't know, you are not forced to do things, you are not compelled to do things. When we have that over a period of time, we have a revival. It changes our worldview. It shapes us. It ensures that our marriages are healthier, our parenting, our relationships, all of these things. Even our approaches to singleness. All of these things change because the Holy Spirit is moving in a powerful way, but it's moving in ways that would call the ordinary. Now, I said that it also means that we, things are being renewed, spiritual renewal. And think about this, if we can apply it to one sense, that in our society, we have lots of hurt and hardened people. And these are often connected. Why are they hard? Because they are hurt. Why are they hurt? Because they are hard. And one of those instances is what you call rejected people. Going back to my, um, um, what I was talking about in the beginning. This city has tons of rejected people. Some won't even admit it, but they deal with the effects of this hurt continuously. Perhaps you're one of those people here. Now, if your society is filled with broken people, and one of the things we'll look at today is that this statement that truly, and we know this, that broken people break people. If the society is filled with such people, our community fabric eventually becomes fractured. It leads to a lot of distrust and a lot of division. Now, I believe that God wants to do something about that. And this story about Jephthah teaches us a lot of it. So the sermon today we are looking at is the rejected Savior. I want to chart how God uses a man who's dealt with the pain of rejection and what he's saying to us urban Lagosians who are seeking spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. So we're going to look at the rejected Savior under three headings, the pain of rejection, the result of rejection, and the healing of rejection. The pain of rejection, the result of rejection, and the healing of rejection. Can I quickly apologize for people who are suffering with heat because this air condition isn't working? We'll try and sort it out this week so that it doesn't happen next week. Now, turn back to verse 6 of chapter 10. Again. Can we all say again together? It's happened again. We know if you've been going with this series, they've done it again. What have they done? Again, the Israelites did what? Evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's almost like we said last week. It's like a broken record, a, scra a, a scratch record. The DJ going, e -e 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 -e. again, they've done it. They've gone after idols, as we can see. The funny thing about this is that they've gone after idols. The idols have made a comeback. 
Because really, you see there that they are dealing with the idols of Aram, the idols of Moab. And Am Look, Ophniel helped them with the, the idols of Aram in 3 verse 10. Ehud against Moab and Ammon in 3:12 to 13. Deborah against the Baals in 3:31, and Shamgar against the Philistines. I'm sorry, um, Deborah <laughs> against the Baals in 5:19, and Shamgar against the Philistines in 3:31. But they've come back again. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but sometimes when idols disappoint us, people don't feel like and see that the idols are the problem. What they feel is this: that we didn't worship the idols enough. It's like the woman at the well. Try the first husband. She was looking for satisfaction. It didn't work. So what did she do? Try the second one. Ah, it didn't work. These people are not my soulmates, my destiny, whatever. She kept going on until five. She eventually said, no, romance is not the problem. Marriage is the problem, but romance will keep it. So the last guy, the sixth guy, was not her husband, but she was living with him. Sometimes we feel that the idols are not the problem. The problem is that we're not worshiping the idols enough. But anyway, God is angry. We have that cycle. After a period of time, after they've forsaken God, verse, 10, verse, uh, verse 7, it says God is angry. He puts them under judgment, and they are oppressed for 18 years. Essentially, why? Because idolatry, in another sense, is a rejection of God, a forsaken of God. Look at verse 6. It says that, and because the Israelites forsook God, and even if you read verse 10, you see there again, they forsook God. Verse 13, they forsook God. You are forsaking, you are rejecting, you are saying that this God would not be God of my life. And we see that strong theme of rejection there. You see, after they cried out to God, because they have rejected God, God does acquiesce. We see that in verse 16 of chapter 10. He eventually cry, uh, heeds to their cry. And now, how is he going to do it? Well, he's going to save them with a deliverer, a guy called Jephthah. But this deliverer, as we're going to see, his early life experiences, his early life experiences mirrors exactly what Israel were doing to their God. He was a rejected savior. God almost says, okay, this is what you've done to me, and so the person I'm going to use to deliver is going to be someone that mirrors exactly what you are doing to me. So let's consider who Jephthah was. Now, it says here, that he's a mighty warrior. And we're going to look at why. Now look at verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown, well, let me stop there. His, mother, his father was Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. In other words, he was an illegitimate son. He was an outcast in his own family. Think about what that is growing up in that kind of family. And some of us know this. Perhaps you've been the child, you are part of the children, not of the first wife, the Yali. There is a tag that is put upon you. Things are done in the house that Almost there's like two tiers. There's the one that is the real insiders in the house. Then maybe there's a general one. When we're having a party, you are there. These other people are giving special clothes. You are not really there. These other people are meeting your parents' friends, but you are the one they send to go and buy this thing and come and serve them. There is a tag that is put upon you that eventually gets into you. It goes from the outside. He's, he, over the period of time, he develops this sense of internal rejection. He's 
being an illegitimate child many times. If he does a particular thing, I say, why not? Of course. Because your mom is like, isn't there, are you not the son of, they will probably you know, use the word SOB, uh, use the phrase SOB. And they'll say it's appropriate. They're the son of a prostitute. Of course you're going to behave like that. Don't go near, don't go near, don't go near that, um, don't go near my child. Don't, please, please, please. We don't want you there. And he had to go through that for such a long time. Eventually, even though he tried to endure it, his internal reality became an external reality. What did they do? They drove him, Jephthah, away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family because you are the son of another woman. He probably endured because he felt, at least, even if I don't get equal portions of the inheritance, I'll get something. But no, they drove him away. And you see, rejection doesn't just work in this particular way. Many of us have dealt with it. Sometimes it is that we failed a job interview. You prepared, you prepared. You went through the first hoop. You went through the second hoop. And eventually, when you went to the final stage, what happened? You failed. In fact, some of us don't even get through. By the time you submit your CV because you didn't finish with 2-1, it means that you can't get through. And it's not just the sense that we were refused or we failed. The rejection comes in, I wanted to be part of a cadre of people. I wanted to be part of this class of people. I wanted to work in this kind of organization. But you were rejected. Or you've been dumped by someone. And the issue about being dumped, it wasn't just for you that the relationship failed. That was bad enough. It was the sense of worthlessness. I wasn't good enough because you were rejected. Or let's even bring it back home in church. You know that person at church that you like, really, really like, very fond of, at the end of church, and you just want to talk to that person. Maybe because the person is very, very super spiritual or the person is a bit sophisticated and you want to, you kind of want it going around. And you see the person chatting up with everybody, you know, giving bimbo a nice hug and kisses, and you're kind of there. And then when you now come around, hey, hi, Faye. <laughs> and then you get monosyllabic answers. Hi. <laughs> you know when you are zoned in church, this kind of, yeah, okay, so why are you here? All right, now nah, how, how are you? And everybody's just waiting. When are you going to move? Good church people, we do that. I felt it. <laughs> now, it's not so funny because what happens with that person is you feel like, well, of course she's going to chat with those kinds of people. Those are kinds of people. I'm not as educated as that. And so you feel like you don't measure up. Rejection really hurts. It really hurts. Now, let me give you a little bit of uh, scientific uh, proof of that. So Guy Winch is a psychologist. He's you know, in America, everybody's a celebrity something. So he's spoken at TED. The guy seems to know a little bit of what he says. He lists some of the um, effects that we have of rejection. And two of those things that I want to point out is, one, pain, and the second is anger. Pain and anger. Now, do this for me. Everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your, if you don't close your eyes, you miss the rapture, all right? Just <laughs> close your eyes. I want an experiment. Just very, very short experiment. Are we all closing our eyes? All right. Think of two things. Think of the most painful wound that you had, whether in your teens or your early 20s. The most painful wound in your teens and your early 20s. Think of that. You fell down or, you know, you got bruised. Now, 
Think about whether you've been dumped, whether you've been rejected, whether something happened in your childhood, or maybe you failed a particular interview. And I want you to be honest about how you feel. Think about that. Or maybe you are zoned in the friend zone. Open your eyes. Which felt more painful? The second one. Second one. Now, Guy Wynn points out that when we relieve our social and we experience our social um, rejection or pain, it's much more painful than when we do that with physical pain. The second one is the surges of anger. He points out the surges of anger that rejection brings. I was thinking of, think of the late great Tupac. Tupac in one of his best songs, don't worry, I'm not going to curse, is the best, is the song without any cursing. We're talking about Dear Mama here, all right? If you're a Christian and you want to listen to Tupac, listen to Dear Mama. He's thinking about, <laughs> you know, put, you put Dear Mama, it finishes, ah, but you now see hit him up there. Ah, should I click it? Ah, the beat is nice, it's not for the lyrics, you know? And so, okay, I didn't do that, by the way. I would like to listen to hit him up, all that vulgar. Anyway, so Tupac says this. When he's thinking about his father, he's thinking about his father. He shows a kind of indifference to his father's passing away. And listen, he says, now ain't nobody tell us that it was fair. No love for my daddy because the coward wasn't there. He passed away and I didn't cry because the anger wouldn't let me feel for a stranger. They say I'm wrong and I'm heartless. But all along, I was looking for a father. He was gone. His anger wouldn't let him feel for a stranger. You see, on the one hand, rejection can make you so sad. So, you know, feel, you feel like nobody wants you and you're just paralyzed by grief. On the other hand, rejection can make you very, very angry. How do we deal with this? Well, pain, we can deal with pain in three ways. Some of us here are dealing with it through basically denial. This is three negative ways of dealing with it. We deal with it in, well, sorry, two negative ways and one positive way. We deal with it by denial. She dumped you. What happened to you and uh, Kike? We decided things weren't working out. <laughs> Just didn't work out. I, I thought you were applying to that job, that place, that company, I don't like their ethos. <laughs> you basically deny it. You can't accept it because you are scared of what it says about you. And so you deny it. Another way is preservation. Denial is actually a form of preservation. It is that I was dumb the first time, I was dumb the second time. I'm done with this whole relationship thing. I applied the first time, I was rejected. The second time, I rejected. Why, why even bother? It's not for people like me. I spoke to her at church. She didn't want to talk, so why try? All this community, community thing. Yes, it sounds nice on paper, but really, I've been hurt so many times. So we try to preserve ourselves. T.S. Lewis says something about when you try to preserve your heart from loving. You say, I don't want to love. So you take your heart, fine, go. Put it inside a box. You'll preserve it very well, but it will become so hard, it will never, ever be able to love again. There's something that happens to you when you, quote, unquote, want to preserve yourself. You recreate yourself. I'll talk about that in the second point. 
But another positive way of dealing with the pain is community. Community. That is, you didn't, you couldn't fit into this um, uh, uh, club that you wanted to, but they talk about there's a primal fundamental need of every human being to belong. So even though I was rejected here, what do you do? You look for somewhere else. The virtue doesn't matter of that place. Listen to Tupac after I said that. I said, I hung around the thug with the thugs, and even though they sold drugs, they showed their young brother love. The virtue of the community doesn't matter at that point. It is that you are accepted. This is what happened with Jephthah. So Jephthah fled, verse 3 of 11, from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where what? A gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Scoundrels. He said, well, you call them scoundrels. I call them family. They loved me. They accepted me. This shows you the power of what acceptance does. It's not, you don't first think about the virtue of the community. This is why, sadly, and we must say this, a lot of people who have dealt with same-sex attraction in the church, because we talk about it in such a way that I don't think Jesus would talk about it, they leave the church because, you know, they, they can't find any room there, and then they find communities outside where there's promiscuity of that kind of thing, but they join. Why? Because they feel accepted. And I think as a church, we have to, be like that. As a church, we must have a welcoming spirit and welcoming hands for those who do not believe, do not pray, do not dress, or do not talk like us. Can we be welcoming? Now, don't get me wrong. Welcoming does not mean endorsing. It doesn't mean endorsing. It can't even mean endorsing. But it certainly doesn't mean rejecting either. Because you say, ah, we should welcome it. Are we not going to accept everything? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you don't just have to push people out the first time you see them. It means not trying to be, it's not, the first thing that comes to your mind when you see that this girl is not dressed the way, we, or she didn't pray the way we pray, the first thing that comes to your mind is not trying to fix the problem or trying to correct the person. That's not the first thing on your mind. The first thing on your mind is that God has sent even some diverse people around us. Welcome them. So that's how we deal with the pain. How do we deal with the anger? Well, we deal with the anger by pointing it out on others. It's what I said in the beginning. Broken people break people. The reaction, you become hardened. So the reaction is that you're always angry. And others around you don't want to be around you. If we trace the life of many criminals on the streets today, they've been broken by rejection. Too many people whose hearts have been broken only seek to do it to others. So you see, rejection has, this is what it does, but rejection also has the power to recreate us. We've seen how it makes us feel, but what does it make us? Well, let's turn to point two, the result of rejection. The result of rejection. Now, rejection can lead us in two directions in terms of recreating us. And one is positive, the other is negative. So let me start with the positive one. So it either it, it, the um, two results are learning and hardening. Learning and hardening. Notice that um, they came to meet Jephthah, and they said, come and help us, because now the oppression is too much. They must have observed something about Jephthah at the time he was away, for them to come and say, come and help us. Now, at this point, he's a warrior. So maybe people have found out that this guy can actually lead an army. So they say, come. And when he does that, when they do that, we read from verses 7 to 11, he starts to negotiate with them. If 
I become your ruler. I hope you guys are not going to trick me. I'm, if I become your uh, rescuer, I must also become your ruler. In a stormy way, the guy has become, they knew him as a warrior, but now they are beginning to know him as a negotiator. In fact, from verses 14 to 27, which we didn't read, he applies that same skill with the king, the Ammonite king. The Ammonite king wants to get back land that supposedly belongs to him. Jephthah gives him a historical, a legal, and a theological argument as to why that wasn't true. He starts to negotiate. He's learned something. Because living out on the margins, you have to make it through by good negotiation. A second one is that Jephthah learns, so I said the, the negotiation, well, I'm sorry, the negotiating and the worry, he learns through the pain of the rejection. You see, there's much God can teach us through our pain. The New York-based uh, uh, Inc. magazine says this about people who often how uh, very strong mentally people deal, men mentally strong people deal with rejection, at least five, but one of them is this, is that they learn from their rejection. Listen, it says, rather than simply tolerate the pain, they turn it into an opportunity for self-growth. With each rejection, they grow stronger and become better. You can either decide to look at it and be defeated, or you can say, what can I go learn through this? And from a Christian perspective, we see that the father is the one who he, 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 every, every, every branch that is in me, truly in me, and that is bearing fruit, what does the father do? He prunes. Pruning is not always easy. So we don't just see it as, you know, self-will, a human spirit just developing. When we say God is teaching us, he's forming us in the fire. Now, if that's positive, it can also affect us in a negative way. It creates us in a negative way. And that is hardening. Now, we see in verses 29 and verses 32 to 33, Jephthah eventually takes on the mantle to lead and to fight. He fights them, and he defeats them, right? He decides to do that in verse 29. By 32, 33, he went, fought the Ammonites. The, uh, Yahweh gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns. Fantastic. Wonderful victory. This would be a good place to end the story, wouldn't it? Except Jephthah's stuff ends in a tragedy. Why? Because in verses 30 to 31, he ends up making a needless and a completely stupid vow. It was a vow to sacrifice whatsoever first comes out to meet him. Now in verse 34 and 38, we then see that tragically, what came out to meet him first? His child, his only child, his daughter, eventually sacrificed her in verse 39. Now, first of all, I know some of us will think, because this is the Bible, we have to read that. You know he was thinking that it was an animal sacrifice. That was what he, he was thinking of an animal. That's not true. I'll give you three reasons. He says he came out of his door. At that time, the way things were constructed, you weren't keeping animals in your, in your house, especially your poultry animals. That's the first thing. Second thing, a bit of a technical issue there. If you wanted to, the Hebrew word there, if you wanted to refer to an animal, right, the the noun that you use is something called a neuter. It, it, it would really be what they put there, whatsoever comes. But the noun that is used there, it should be translated, whosoever comes out. And a third point is, if it was a human, if it was a, an animal sacrifice that he was thinking in his mind, that was what he vowed to God, then when his daughter came out, he would just be waiting. Where is the animal that is coming? No. He would have just ignored his daughter. If somebody else came out, he would have ignored the person until the first animal comes out. No. Jephthah made a vow to sacrifice 
a human being. He just never thought it was his daughter that was going to come out. Now, why did he do such a thing? Would God actually allow that? No. Even in the Old Testament, according to the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 12, 31, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. That's the way of the people that dwell in the land I'm taking you to. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their own sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their God. So why did he do that? Now, can I suggest to you that he had a terribly wrong view about God? His experiences being out on the margin, he had observed the Canaanite religions outside, and he had also become a hardened person because, you know, to make it through life, you've got to be tough. They will reject you. They will beat you. And as Rocky said, it's not how much you hit, but it's how much you get hit and able to keep moving on. And for you to develop that kind of tenacity, you have to harden yourself. That's the way Jephthah is thinking. You see, this particular battle, God gave him by sheer grace. It was Yahweh that delivered the Ammonites into his hands. But you see, even sufferers are sinners as well. Suffering doesn't necessarily sanctify you. It doesn't necessarily make you a saint. God's choice of Jephthah and his empowering of him by the Spirit was not due to any... God wasn't... It wasn't, obviously, it wasn't due to any kind of moral qualification that he possessed. Even Jephthah would have said that. But Jephthah couldn't understand because he, he had learned in life. He had to negotiate. He had to give something for something. People don't give you anything for free. There is no such thing as free lunch. That's what he's thinking. So he's thinking, I need to assure myself that this God is going to give me this victory. So if you give me this victory, I will pay you back. So he felt he was in debt of God. And what better thing to give? He has already observed the kinds of, the ways the gods around him actually operate. And so what better thing to give this God than to give him what? Human sacrifice. We have to be very careful how much we are discipled by a culture and we start saying it is God. There are many things we bring in and we say, well, God said this, God said this, and you are trying to say, where in the Bible? We say, well, somewhere in the Bible, sir. In the middle. He couldn't understand a God of grace. Why? Because he had become so hardened. Isn't it ironic how easy it is to reject grace? You say, well, everybody wants something for free. Hardly does anyone want something for free. Because when you get the most incredible thing for free, you think, I'm totally in debt of this person. What do I do to pay back? This is why sometimes we cannot find, we can't, receive the grace of God, because it's not just so much that we've been rejected, the active thing. The rejection now defines us. You move from, I was being rejected, verb, to, I am the rejected, noun. And if we're ever going to move on in life, we need a new definition. We need to find a greater stability that all, uh, uh, to define ourselves, all the, the sum total of all the rejections in my life does not still define me. So how? Who? What will define me? Well, let's go to point three. The healing of rejection. Now, if you read further with Jephthah's story, it actually even is, it becomes even worse. I mean, but chapter 12, 1 to 6, he fights Ephraimites, who are also Israelites. He fights because those ones refuse to join him in battle, but now they now say, why didn't you call us? So he fights them, he kills, he defeats them. 
but notice, even those people, after he had been victorious, those people still rejected him as well. And worse off, you know, when we're reading the other judges, they would say, and then Israel, they ruled, and then Israel had peace for 20 years, 30, 40 years. In verse 7 of the, uh, the end, Jephthah's story, it's not recorded that Israel had any peace or any rest. Tragic. Absolute tragic one. In other words, Israel were still searching for that king, for that ruler that would give them rest. Because as long as they didn't have a king and a ruler, it says in the book of Judges constantly that every man did what was right in their own eyes. Ooh, it's not Jephthah, it's not Ophniel, it's not Deborah, it's not Ehud. And now we have no rest. They were in need of a savior to help them with their rejection, the rejection that defined them. And perhaps you also need of a savior that will help you through the rejection that continues to define you. Well, thousands of years later, after this, God sent Israel another savior. But this savior also was going to be rejected. In fact, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about him in Isaiah 53. He says that this man was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. I'm familiar with pain or grief. Familiar with pain or grief. Like one from whom we hide our faces, he was despised, and we held him what? In low esteem, rejected. In fact, one of his disciples that hung around him, a guy called John, even said this when he was summarizing the guy's life. In John chapter 1, verse 11, he says, He came to those that which was his own, but they did not. But his own did not receive him. His own kinsmen. Worse off, when he is even thinking about himself, he takes a quotation from Psalm 118, referring to himself. He said, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone, the builders, what? Rejected. He referred to himself as a rejected stone. Himself, he said he was rejected. A prophet prophesied about him that he was rejected. And now even one of his disciples said he was rejected. But unlike Jephthah, Jesus had no rejection issues. No rejection issues. He knew he was solid in his identity why he came. He came out of love to bear the pain of the rejected. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain. That's why he was familiar with pain. Because he was taking up our pain, the pain of the rejected, and bore our suffering. Yet, whilst that was happening, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Of course, he was punished by God. You see, he bore our pain and our suffering. He identified with us there and he took it. But also, he was being punished by God. Why? Because of the sinful anger that comes out of our rejection. Because if God is just, he must also punish that. And why did he do all of this? Is it just to identify with us? Is it just to say, well, just see how much I love you, and then still nothing is done about it. We can't find rest. No. He says, by his wounds we are. Jesus now suffered the rejection. You see, Whatever rejection we find here ultimately points to a greater rejection that God, who we confess, will judge the living and the dead. He is going to judge every single thing. You may say, I don't reject, uh, don't reject as much as people, but have you rejected people? 
You may say, oh, no, I've been the rejected one, but have you reacted in anger? And if God is just, he must, ju he must judge all evil in this world. And his ultimate judgment of evil, Paul refers to it as utter banishment from his presence forever. It's what we call hell. But on the cross, Jesus took that rejection for us. So that he could change us from being the rejected to now being the accepted. John then says, after his own did not receive him, he said, yeah, to all that did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. Jephthah sacrificed his only daughter. He did not need to. God didn't ask that. God says, I will sacrifice my own son. So that when I sacrifice my son, those who have been rejected will now be called my children. They're not called the accepted. So he finishes the quote that truly the stone that the builders has rejected has become now, has become what? The cornerstone. Because he didn't just die, he rose again. And this is only the Lord's doing which is marvelous in our eyes. So maybe you are that kind of person. Everyone has rejected you're still dealing with these issues, and you feel you've not gotten the love of God. It's not just some kind of fuzzy-wuzzy love. If I'm saying come and receive the love of God, it's not just think about it, God just loves you, he just wants to embrace you. That wouldn't always stand you in the test of time. No, God's love is saying, identify yourself as being hurt, but also one that hurts people. I must judge that, but I'm not sending you away. Why? Because I sent my son away so that I can receive and accept you. This is what it means to be a Christian. But even if you're a Christian here, it totally revolutionizes the way you live. Because when we receive and see that we're now accepted, it helps us to deal with other kinds of rejections in our lives. Because you will still, think will still, you will still fail some job interviews. You'll pass some, but you fail some. Someone may still break your heart. How do you deal with that? Now, the Bible doesn't say that you shouldn't think about it. It's not about positive confession. You will be disappointed. And the Bible says, feel that pain. But guess what? You can stand again. Why? Because you are not going to be rejected by the one whose acceptance of you matters more than anyone else. That person who rejects you may reject you and you may feel the pain, but that rejection should not define you. Why? Because now your life is hidden with Christ in God. Something else now redefines you, and it's the love of God. It also means that you get the strength, even though I've been rejected here, I will still take the risk once again to put myself outside because I am not trying to define myself by this next person who is going to define me. No, I'm already an accepted person. I am secure in that. It also means that we have the strength to accept others. It says, accept one another just as God has accepted you in Christ. Why do we accept people? Is it because we like them? Some people we will. But some people we are meant to accept even when we have different opinions, different politics, different tribes, different, all of those things. Why? Because our basis of acceptance is not because we look like each other. Our basis of acceptance is because God has accepted us when we didn't deserve it. Can you do that? Can you talk to someone today that you normally wouldn't talk to? Can you reach out to someone that you wouldn't reach out to normally during the week? Can you show that same acceptance? that the Spirit gives because he's given the love. You see, when we see people changed like this, 
when people receive this kind of spiritual renewal, when people are intensified, when we see this spreading around our city, we won't be, we won't be trying to plan a revival. We'll be in the throes of it. And at that point, you're not trying to plan economic or social or cultural revival. It will happen. Because if broken people break people, loved people love people. Do we want to see that? I certainly want to. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for how it comes like the balm in Gilead and it helps those who are hurting. I don't know if someone here, and we often don't do this, but I'm going to give some time. If you are someone here that is hurting today, if you are someone here that is still dealing with the pain of rejection, that as we've, the message has come, you've, you are relieving that pain of that rejection, and you know that you really do need the healing of God. Can I say that you open your heart to Jesus today? He is the person that when you come to him, he will not cast you out. Can I say that, think about the gospel and how he accepts you once again. This is a God that never fails. This is a God that is not accepting you because you have to prove yourself. He is accepting you not on your performance, but on the performance of Jesus. Open your heart to him. Tell him to help you to forgive that person. Tell him to help you to not feel that you are defined by that event in your life. Father, I ask that as their prayers come up to you, that by your spirit, you will pour out your love, shed your, broad, your love abroad in their hearts. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.